Good morning, everyone. Uh, great to see you this morning. My name is Norton. I'm one of the pastors here at New Denver. And today um, we're in this series, uh, as Brian mentioned earlier, called Sacred Soma. So this is the second week uh, in the series. The word soma is a Greek word, and it means body. Uh, so we're, we've been talking about and uh, this idea of our physical bodies. And today I want to share uh, one really simple idea with you. Um, in fact, it's an idea about our bodies that is so simple that if I said it right now, you would say, that's it. Like, that's all you got. That's what the sermon uh, is about today. And so um, I'm going to hold off because if I said it, I think you would say there's nothing really new about that idea. There's nothing particularly insightful or useful or helpful. Is that even from the Bible? Where, like, where did you get that? So I think I'm going to hold off. And I'm going to give you some context uh, first, uh, paint sort of a big picture. Um, and then we're going to look at some passages in the Old Testament, the Old Testament part of the Bible. And then hopefully that'll pull it all together. And uh, I'll share with you this idea that is so simple, and yet, in some ways, it's really revolutionary. And I think it would reshape the way we thought about or looked at our bodies if we understood it or believed it. Now, uh, two weeks ago, on Easter, if you happen to be here, I gave you some background context about Greek philosophy and Greek thought and the Greek worldview, which, by the way, dominated the Roman Empire at the time of Jesus. And that's because there was this guy named Alexander the Great who, a couple of centuries, three centuries before Jesus, conquered the known world at that time. And uh, when he did that, including the ancient Near East, uh, where the Jewish people lived, when he did that, um, they imported uh, or exported Greek culture and Greek philosophy and Greek thought and the Greek way of looking at the world to all of the places that were conquered. And that even included the Greek language, which is why during the time of Jesus and after the time of Jesus in the first century AD, the New Testament is actually originally written in Greek. Now, the Greek worldview and people who sort of thought in this sort of Greek way thought about our bodies in a very specific way. They had some clear ideas, and I'll just recap this super briefly. Um, first of all, they believed that everybody was made up of two parts. There's your body and your soul. Uh, your body is the physical part of you. Your soul is the spiritual or the immaterial part of you. Your body is what everyone can see. Your soul is what nobody can see. It's deep down, hidden away inside of you. Uh, your body, by the way, is mortal. It's going to decay and die someday. But your soul, they believed, was immortal. It lives forever. Which means your body is just a prison for your soul. In fact, Plato even describes it that way. And your soul is the real parts of you. And I, I spent some time unpacking this a couple of weeks ago, and I come back to it today mainly um, because I think the way we view our bodies in our modern American culture today is still very similar. We tend to view ourselves the same way. Of course, we're, we're much more scientifically informed and advanced and, and nuanced now, but we still tend to think of ourselves in this very divided way. Uh, some of us obsess about our bodies, uh, and some of us neglect our bodies, but at the end of the day, we tend to view our bodies as something we have. 
Something that we, we carry around. So something that is sometimes or maybe even often at odds with the real us. Something that we're all just stuck with. And that's a very Greek understanding of the body. And today I want to introduce you to a different way of thinking about this. A different worldview. I want to introduce you to the Hebrew worldview. Because the way that the Hebrew people viewed and understood the body was very different than the way Greek people did. Which means the way Hebrew people viewed and understood the body is probably pretty different from the way that we do. So I want to take a little bit of time to unpack this. And I want to share with you uh, four elements. There's a bunch, but I just sort of summarize it into four statements. Or four elements of the Hebrew perspective on our bodies. And then, as I said, I'll try to pull it all together if you're wondering where all this is going. So, number one, uh, there is no Hebrew word for body in the Hebrew language. Uh, soma, as I said, is the word in Greek for body. And of course, in English, we have the word body, right? And uh, for us, we see that we have all these different physical parts of our body, but they all make up one thing called our body. And there's no word like that in the Hebrew language. They have words for your chest. They have words for your bones and for your bowels and for your belly and for your reproductive organs and for your skin and for your flesh and your muscles. They have words and ideas and concepts for all of these things. There's a word for a dead uh, corpse or a carcass, but there's not a Hebrew word that pulls it all together that is just similar or the same as the way we use the word body. And it's not that the Hebrews had a concept or an idea of the body, but they just didn't have a word for it. No, language means something. If you've ever taken a foreign language or understood a foreign language, you know language means something. And if there isn't a word in a language for something, it's because they don't have a concept for it in that culture. Or maybe even that concept just isn't important or that thing doesn't really exist in that culture. You see, in our culture, we have this idea that we all have this thing called a body and we carry it around and we have it and we have to protect it and we have to think about it. But in the Hebrew worldview, they didn't really have that concept. Now, before we move on, one quick thing. If you're reading the Old Testament, every now and then you'll see the English word body. Remember, we're reading translations from the Hebrew, and that's because sometimes there are words, like I said, for flesh or for skin or for bones or for a skeleton or for a carcass on the ground, and sometimes the English translators know that in our minds, the best word to translate that is the word body, but they just don't have that concept. Uh, here's number two. There's no Hebrew concept for the soul either, and there's not even really a word for soul in Hebrew. Now, you could potentially challenge me this morning because if you've read through the Old Testament, you've actually seen the word soul in the Old Testament a whole bunch. In fact, one of the most famous verses in the Old Testament, it's found in this book of Deuteronomy. You might not have known it was there, but you've probably heard the verse before. It's one of the most famous verses for all of the Israelites and for all of the Hebrew people has this word in it. It's Deuteronomy 6.5. And I had to memorize this verse in Hebrew when I was in seminary. 
Vahatav et Adonai Eloheka Vahol Lavavka Uvahol Nashika Uvahol Meodeka. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. This is one of the most famous verses. And in fact, Jesus one day is asked, what's the most important thing we could ever do as it relates to our faith? And he says, it's this verse. Love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. So soul, it's right there in this verse. But here's the deal. The Hebrew word, it's nefesh, that we translate as soul, doesn't really mean soul in the Greek or English way that we use it. And it's not that the translation is bad. Don't, say, don't think that you can't trust a, an English translation. Soul is probably the best word. It's just that we import all sorts of ideas about what soul means that probably weren't there in the Hebrew mindset. Well, let me explain. The Hebrew word nefesh, for the most part, means life. It refers to Life to this life that we have in us or the breath that we sung about a few minutes ago that we have within us. In fact, the first time nefesh is used is in the very first chapter of the Bible. Genesis chapter 1, verse 20. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures. That's nefesh. And let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. God's not saying let the water teem with souls with spiritual, immaterial, hidden things that nobody can see. In fact, people wouldn't have believed that animals even had souls in this way. So that's not what this verse or this passage is talking about. No, it's let the water team with these, these living things, these created living beings, these living creatures. See, we could go back to Deuteronomy and just say, love the Lord your God, with all of your life, with all of the breath that is in you, with all of the, the pulsing God-given energy or life force that is within you. Love God with that. Uh, nefesh also means people in Hebrew. Um, people or persons or personhood. Uh, Exodus 1.5, the descendants, nefesh, of Jacob numbered 70 in all. This is where it tells the story of Jacob and his family moving to Egypt. It's not the souls of Jacob. It's not the spirits of Jacob. It's his people, his family, the people that are related to him, the people that are connected to him, the individual persons that are traveling with him. And so to make it clear to us, they translated it as descendants in English, but nefesh really just refers to your personhood, who you are, your identity, your value, what makes you count. When they're counting the number of people, this is what makes you count. So love the Lord your God with all your personhood, with who you are, with all of your identity. Now, I could give you more examples of this word nefesh, but I won't do that because it's used over 750 times in the Old Testament. It's all over the place. It's a really important word and idea, but it does not refer to some hidden, immaterial, 
spiritual thing that is inside of you that is different from your body or from your life or from who you are. Which leads to a third point. Number three, uh, there is no body-soul dualism in Hebrew. Uh, Dualism is whenever you have two things that are in opposition to one another. We usually think in terms of black and white. That's dualistic thinking. Um, True and false. Yin and yang. Republicans and Democrats, right? I mean, it's two things that are usually in their own categories and they're opposed and divided from one another. And in Greek thought, this was your body and your soul. But in Hebrew, there is no division between your body and your soul. You don't have a soul that's at war with your body. There's not a part of you that's your soul that's spiritual and strong, but then there's your body, and that's sort of fleshly and weak or sinful or carnal or some word like that. There's just you. And all of you is spiritual, and all of you is physical. Let me read you a few verses from Psalm 6. In this psalm, it's a prayer that David is just praying to God because David is in distress and he's crying out to God. And here's what he says. Verse 3, my soul, there's that word nefesh, is in deep anguish. How long, Lord? How long? The idea is that he's been crying out to God and like, how long is it going to take for you to answer me, Lord? Turn, Lord, and deliver me. The word nefesh is actually there too. You could translate it literally, deliver my soul, but it's pretty clear his soul is him. That's who needs delivering. So turn, Lord, and deliver me. Save me because of your unfailing love. Now, if you just read those verses, you would think what? David is going through a spiritual crisis. He has this this existential crisis. Maybe it's a crisis of faith. Maybe he's been abandoned. Maybe he's lonely. Maybe he's lost all hope. Maybe he's questioning his faith in God. And some of us knows what that's like to go through a dark night of the soul where you have all this doubt and you're questioning and all these things. And we can actually find comfort in verses like this, that someone like David experienced things like that all the time too. But let me also read to you what David says in his prayer to God right before this and after this. Have mercy on me, Lord, for I am faint. The word faint is a very physical word. It just means literally, I'm about to faint. I'm weak and feeble. Heal me, the word heal, medical term. Heal me, Lord, for my bones are in agony or in Pain. Something is wrong with them. They need healing. Then he says the part about being in anguish in his soul. And then he says, among the dead, no one proclaims your name. Who praises you from the grave? And now it's really clear. This isn't a spiritual issue that David is going through. This is a physical issue. Like his life is in danger. 
He's in a life or death situation. His body is weak. It's been threatened. Somehow his body is in pain. He's afraid of actual death. A few verses later, we won't read it. He talks about his enemies are coming after him and he needs God to save him. We don't know the circumstances. It's possible David's been in battle and he's wounded and he's laying on the battlefield and that's where this prayer and this cry comes from. He's praying that God would physically heal him and rescue him in this moment, would spare him his life, save him from death. You see, this isn't a spiritual crisis that David is going through. And it would actually be wrong to say it's actually only a physical crisis that he's going through. No, it's, it's both. It's 100% both. It is a spiritual crisis and a physical crisis because he is both. He's not divided. There's not two parts of him and sometimes this part goes through the crisis and sometimes this part does. No, it's 100% physical and 100% spiritual. And this makes total sense to us. We know this. I mean, anybody working in a health profession or the medical field knows this. How many people have we seen in hospital beds, in pain, physically facing a challenge, but also spiritually would say it's a challenge because they go together? Or how many health professionals would say when you have stress in your life, when you have deep inner turmoil in your soul, where does it go? You bear that in your body. You carry that around physically in your body because there's no division in our lives between our bodies and our souls. Everything is physical and everything is spiritual. Here's a fourth point, one more. In the Hebrew worldview, Embodied life is everything. Embodied life is everything. Let me unpack this. Um, If you were just to read through the Old Testament, that's about the first three-fourths of the Bible. That's the history of the the people of Israel uh, and their poetry and their songs and their laws and all those things. If you were just to read that part of the Bible, there's not much talk about heaven in the Old Testament. In fact, it's, it's almost entirely absent In the Old Testament, in the Hebrew worldview, when your body dies, your body just dies. That's it. (laughs) There's no sense that when your body dies, your soul leaves it and goes to heaven to be with God. It's just not in there anywhere. (laughs) In fact, there's no reason, certainly no reason, that the reason that you believe in God or the reason you follow God or the reason you try to live by His wisdom in your life is so that when you die, your soul will go to spend a disembodied eternity with Him. That's just not in the Old Testament. Now, when you die, you die. It's final. That's it. In fact, Ecclesiastes says, when you die, the life that is in you or the breath that is in you returns to God and your body returns to the ground. You've probably heard that phrase, from dust, from dirt, from the ground, from the earth is where you came, and to dust or to dirt or to the ground or to the earth is where you will return. All you have 
is the life you live in your body right now. Now, there are a couple of hints as you get sort of to the end of the Old Testament, or at least the end of the, the, the history of the people of Israel before we get to the New Testament, there's a couple of prophets, Daniel and Ezekiel, at the very end that say, perhaps one day, at the end of time, God will raise our bodies back to life. But they're just hints. A lot of people don't even believe this. And those that do know that if God ever chose to do that at the end of time, he would be raising our bodies back up to life. He would be raising people back to life, people who live in bodies, because there is no such thing as an unembodied life with God. An unembodied life, that's an oxymoron. That just that doesn't make sense. There is no life that's not embodied. Embodied life is everything in this perspective. Now, we'll come back to that idea a little bit more next week. But I share all of this with you today because, well, not because Greek thought is always wrong or, or Hebrew thought is, is always right. Sometimes Hebrew thought is expanded upon by Jesus and by Paul and by others in the New Testament. But on this issue, when it comes to our bodies and to our souls, I think there's something we can learn from this Hebrew perspective. There's a reality that we need to see that we don't often see, a reality that we need to embrace. And it's so simple. I can summarize it in just two simple statements. You don't have a body. You are a body. You don't have a body. You actually are a body. Or another way you could put it is simply, your body is you. That's all I want you to remember today. See, I told you, it was really simple. Your body is you. And the reason this simple, simple, simple statement is so revolutionary is because most of us don't actually believe it. And we don't think this way. We don't even live this way. We often think, well, what's me is my personality or what I know or what I've learned or what I believe or, or what's in my heart or what's in my soul. <laughs> of course, all of those things are important, but you are a body. You don't just have a body. It's not that the part of you that's the most real is within a body for a little while and then it's gone. You're not just a, a personality or a collection of thoughts. And you're not just living in a body. You actually are a body. Your body is you. And this one simple truth, it just has so many implications when you begin to actually think about it. It has implications for how we think about hunger and food. When our bodies are hungry and they have a desire for food and when we fulfill that desire, that is a good thing. That is right and good. That is who we are. It has implications for sexual desire 
It says the sexual desire is, is good. That's the way you were made. How many churches or religious traditions have told us all of our lives that there's something bad or wrong or evil about that? And it's not that at all. It's normal and natural. It's part of who you are to have those desires because you don't just have a body. You aren't just stuck in a body. You are a body. This has... This truth has implications for what it means to be male, to be female, to have a male body or a female body. Genesis says that both are made in God's image and in his likeness, that males and females in their bodies reflect something glorious and amazing about who God actually is. Because you don't have a body, you are a body. This has implications for how we listen to our bodies, how we think about our bodies, how we take care of our bodies, how we nurture our bodies, which is basically just how we take care of and listen to and nurture ourselves. The way you take care of yourself or listen to yourself or nurture yourself is by taking care of your body and listening to your body and nurturing your body. One more implication, this this influences how we practice presence in our bodies. How mindful are you? How aware of you that you are in your body? Let me ask you to do something real quick. Um, This is just uh, something I want to ask everyone to do. If you would take a moment, if you're here or you're at home watching, if you would take a moment and just wiggle your toes, if you can. If you can, can everyone just wiggle their toes? Are you doing it? Awesome, thank you. How instantaneous was that? That you actually thought about it and then it instantly started happening. How amazing is that? All right, now I want you to take one of your fingers and I want you to start pinching it. And now just start pinching it. Come on, everybody. You guys just start pinching it even harder, right? You feel a little bit of pain, don't you? Isn't that amazing that your body is saying, hey, that's interesting. Oh, wait, don't do that harder. Stop. I'm going to move my hand. If you, like, it's telling us something if we just listen to it. One more thing. Um, could you just take a moment right now and could you tell your, your heart to start beating? And now could you tell your lungs to just start breathing? You don't need to tell your body to. It's already been doing that. In fact, the entire time that I've been talking, your body has done a million amazing things that you and I aren't even aware of. It's been fighting off infection. It's been digesting food. It's been circulating blood and oxygen. It's been maintaining your balance as you sit in your chair or as you stand. It's been processing information. It's been listening to things and and doing things with those sounds. It's, It's been doing all sorts of amazing things. And how much do we miss when we don't listen to our bodies? How much do we not learn about ourselves? How much do we not learn about other people? How much do we not learn about the world that we live in? How much do we not learn about the God who made us in his image when we just ignore or neglect our bodies as this thing that we just carry around? 
Uh, I went hiking last weekend, and I was hiking by myself, and uh, I listened to a podcast while I was hiking, and it was a really good podcast. And um, when I got home from hiking, I came in the kitchen, and my wife Janice, she was cooking a meal uh, in our kitchen, and she was watching a TV show um, on her laptop. It was sitting there in the kitchen, and it struck me that we were both doing very physical, bodily, human things. I had been walking in nature, and she was creating food. Two of the most bodily, physical, human, natural things we could be doing. And yet both of us felt the need to distract our minds while we were doing it. To not really be present in our bodies. Almost as if what we're doing right now in our bodies isn't that significant, isn't that real. I need to escape by listening to this thing or watching something else to get through what I'm actually physically doing. And it's not that TV is wrong, it's not that podcasts are wrong. I just want to challenge you to embrace living in your body this week. Be present in your body. Pay attention to your body. Honor your body. Nurture your body. And I want to give you a few experiments to try to start doing this a little bit more. So I have three experiments for you, and you can pick any one of them. And if you're an overachiever, you can try to do all three. That would be awesome. But just pick one of them. Number one, I want you to go on a walk or a hike this week. You can, it doesn't have to be a hike in the mountains. It could just be a walk in a park. But go alone and leave your phone at home or leave it in the car in the parking lot. And just pay attention to your body. What's it doing as you're walking? What are you feeling? What are the things that you're experiencing in your body? Here's your second option. Uh, create a meal this week, right? And then take time to enjoy the meal. Maybe you're not a cook, so you'll have to go online and look up some recipes first, or you can ask somebody to help you out, or you can do this with a friend, or you can do this with others or family, but do something that, that requires just getting your hands dirty. And as you, as you chop up the vegetables or the fruit, ask yourself, like, I wonder where these came from. I wonder where this grain came from. I wonder where this meat came from. And then take time to, to savor the food, taste the food, enjoy the food, be nourished by the food. Just be present in the act of creating a meal and then being nourished by it. Uh, here's the third option. Take a long, unhurried bath or shower this week. Don't speed through it quickly. Here's what we usually do. We're usually hopping in the shower and then hopping out really quickly before we have to head off to work or we have to head to school or before we go to bed at night. So set aside a long chunk of time and just pay the extra water bill for the hot water, right? Don't worry about that. Take a long bath or a long shower and as you do that, just gently cleanse and scrub each part of your body. And as you do that, just marvel at each part of your body. Like these elbows, think about them, they're amazing. If I didn't have elbows, how would I eat food? 
Like I couldn't, like I couldn't do that. How would I do that? Are these ankles? Like how would, how would I walk well if I didn't have ankles? Remember that time I sprained my foot and I couldn't walk and it hurt so much and now it's better and it's healed? That's amazing. These ears, like how is it that they hear things and pro- like just take time? We don't do that because we're in a hurry. Because we have other things that are more important to be thinking about or concerned with. Because we think that we just have bodies. We're just stuck with bodies. We're just carrying them around. We're just trapped in them. But if you forget everything else, don't forget this. You don't have a body. You are a body. Your body is you. Let me pray for us. God, we do marvel at the way that you made these intricate and beautiful and complex bodies. God, help us this week to be present in these bodies. Help us to recognize how much you love us in our bodies, how much you accept us and affirm us in our bodies, how sacred our bodies are. Help us to do that this week. We pray this in your name. Amen.